Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, guys, so this breakout, let's just be honest, right from the, right from the get-go, I'm just going to let you know, this is, obviously, this is a very tough topic. It's a very sensitive topic. Um, and what we're going to be able to cover, what I'm going to be able to cover in like the next 42-ish minutes is, is just not anywhere near enough of what like this topic deserves. So I just want to direct your attention immediately. You can jot these things down. Uh, first to this website. It's called sexchangeregret.com. Uh, it's curated by this guy named Walt Heyer. Walt was uh, one of the first people in the United States to get a sex reassignment surgery back in, I think it was the 70s. Anyway, he went through a lot of therapy and inner healing and, and just discovered, hey, this actually wasn't the thing that I needed. This didn't solve the problem. And uh, so this website that he's curated, it, it has tons of research and testimonials for people who have gone through the far consequences of, of the transgender thing, the reassignment surgery, all that stuff. And they obviously they regret it. Um, so it's them telling their stories, uh, and it's one of the most silenced, I think, voices in the whole, um, I don't know, arena. So this website, just check it out. Just check it out. The other thing are these two books I want to recommend. The first is uh, called Irreversible Damage by this woman named Abigail Schreier. Uh, this book is awesome. If you search any of, if you search her name, you know, podcast interviews that she's done, she's just fantastic. And this other one, When Harry Became Sally by Dr. Ryan Anderson, both are phenomenal. That one, his, his book um, got booted off of Amazon. That's how you know it's a good book, right? So he's, he's, it's not on Amazon. So, all right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, thank you so much for the gift of this day. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for the opportunity to rest in the truth of the church, the truth of the human person, where we ask you to open our minds and hearts to be docile to the spirit and protect us in this room. Let us pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Um, if you want to just like keep praying for my voice as I'm talking, <laughs> I don't usually sound like this. I just have lost my voice, and uh, St. Anthony hasn't found it for me yet. So that's why I'm taking all these cough drops and water. All right, so, all right, so uh, raise your hand if you've taken any time studying, reading, hearing anything about theology of the body. Raise your hand. Okay, a few of us, great. All right, so Theology of the Body was the first major teaching project of Pope John Paul II when he was elected in uh, 1978. And what it is, is a, um, it's a deep look answering the question of what does it mean to be human and how do we find actual real happiness? Uh, I've been teaching Theology of the Body um, to teens and middle schoolers, high schoolers, pretty much on and off in different ways since 2008. And in teaching it, there's always been tough, hot-button issues. There's always been stuff that's gotten people riled up, whether it's gay marriage or what the church teaches on homosexuality or contraception. But nothing compares to what I've seen in the last three to four years when it comes to this transgender issue. Nothing has gotten people more uh, upset, I would say, than, than what I see with this. Um, it's really like a third-rail issue. Um, 
how it's become. So what I want to do first here is I want to name what I see as the good in, in this whole thing, the, the good that I see in the whole LGBTQ movement, what I see as good in, in the desire for people to be allies, all of that. What I see is really good is that the, like the vast majority of people, the vast majority of your peers who, who would identify as like allies, if you will, of the LGBTQ movement, um, these, the vast majority of these people are not motivated by, let's just say, like intense philosophical ideology, right? These are not people who have been reading uh, Herbert Marcuse or Jacques Derrida or Rene Descartes or Marx or Engels. Like the people in, who are your age, right, they're probably not reading those books, right? Maybe they are. I doubt it, right? What motivates people, I think, by and large in this area um, is compassion, right? I think that's what is a huge motivator for a lot of folks, that there's a desire to be uh, to, to express a compassion for folks who are struggling, right? People don't want to see people feel marginalized. They don't want to see people feel bullied or left out or excluded or silenced, right? So I think at the bottom of, of what motivates a lot of people is compassion. It's a misguided compassion, I'll argue, but compassion nonetheless. And that's, that's good. We can work with that, you know? You want to protect people from feeling left out and hurt and bullied? Great. So do I, right? You want to help people feel loved and included and, and valued? That's awesome. That is, right? That's at the heart of the gospel. Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it to me, right? Jesus wants us to be that voice of inclusion. But here's where things, um, this is where it's, it's kind of fallen off the rails, where the culture has fallen off the rails. Like love if it's going to be real love, it has to be attached to the truth. Love has to be attached to the truth if it's going to be real love. Compassion detached from the truth is no longer compassionate. Does that make sense? Like that is so important. That is so important. Just to give you like an example of kind of what I mean, just kind of shift the, the analogy a little bit. Um, imagine someone who's struggling with a different body dysmorphia. Someone who struggles with anorexia, whether it's a boy or a girl. Imagine so like that person feels, their inner sense of who they are is, I feel very fat. I feel overweight. No matter what I do, I look in the mirror, I see someone who's overweight. Imagine look, someone looking at them saying, like, like, well, yeah, like, you know, you are. Like, and who am I to tell you that your sense of who you are, your sense of your body is wrong? Like, if you feel that you're fat, then yeah, you are. Would that be loving? Yes or no? No. No. Like, that's like evil. Right? Like, that's monstrously unloving. That's not love, right? That's not love. So the, the compassion and love instinct to protect this whole movement, like, that's good. But since it's detached itself from the truth, it has turned into something really destructive and, and ultimately something that's really unloving, right? If we've jettisoned the truth, then we can't really have a lot of love. So what I want to try and do real quick is I want to try and trace the origins a little bit of, of where all of this came from, this sort of transgender phenomenon. And then I want to take a sort of deeper dive of uh, why it's so important, like from a spiritual viewpoint, why it's so important that we get this right. Like, in other words, <clears throat> this whole transgender thing is not a peripheral issue for the church. It's not as though it's like there's just a bunch of old men in Rome who are hung up on, you know, transgender issues, right? Like, 
no, no, if we get this wrong, we have lost everything. Like, this is like the, you know, like you play, you play Jenga, like it's like the one bottom piece, like it's the one in the middle. You get rid of that one, the whole tower is collapsing, right? If we get rid of this, the whole thing, all of Christianity collapses. That might sound dramatic, but it's true. It's really true. So, all right, repeat after me. Ideas have consequences. Now do it with a Scottish accent. Oh, that's pretty good, Billy. That was pretty good. All right, ideas have consequences. Next one, bad ideas have bad consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. If we can get that, we're in good shape, right? Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. And no one had one of the, no one had a worse idea than than this Frenchie right here. Okay, this guy is uh, his name is Rene Descartes. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, you want to talk about a good mustache right there. Look at that thing. Okay, so who is Rene Descartes? He was one of, uh, he was a revolutionary philosophical thinker during the Enlightenment. Um, Rene Descartes was really frustrated with all the philosophers before him. He was frustrated that this guy disagreed with that guy, this guy disagreed with that guy, and he wanted to get to, I just want to find some foundation that I can build my philosophy on. So he started doubting everything. And what he realized is, Okay, I can doubt everything, but as long as I'm thinking, I can't be deceived that I'm thinking. Is that, that's confusing. You with me, though? Like, he's like, okay, I could be wrong about what I'm thinking, but the fact that I'm thinking, I can't be deceived that I'm thinking. So what Descartes came to is he, like, redefined what it meant to be human. He said what it means to be human is to be this thinking thing, this spiritual soul that is somehow associated with, connected with a machine body, right? That's where he gets his, his, his saying, I think, therefore I am. So here, here's this, this line of thinking, this, this way of understanding the human person has so infiltrated, has so affected all of our, like, it's, it's, it's with us today. The way we think about what it means to be human, it's with us today. All right, just to give you like a little visual of what I mean. All right. All right, everyone up here, uh, I want you to look at my body. You're all holding back laughter. I can feel it. Why does that feel weird? I mean, I, do, I work out, y'all, okay? Like, does that feel weird? What if I said, everyone look at me? Would that have been a little bit more palatable? Yeah. Why? You're not just a body. Say it? Because you're not just a body. I'm not just a body. What am I? Person. Oh, oh man, high five. What's your name? Daniel. Daniel. Give Daniel a round of applause. Man. Daniel, you should give the rest of this talk. That was so good. I'm not just a body, right? Like, but we say, like, we, we have this view that like the soul and body are these like disconnected things. Like, notice we don't say things like, hey, did you hear that Jenny's mom's body has cancer? Like, nobody says that. <laughs> like, no, Jenny's mom has cancer. Or, like, like if I were to punch Daniel in the face, I won't, Daniel. We just became friends. If I were to punch Daniel in the face, like, Daniel wouldn't, like, sue me for property damage. He would have me arrested for assault, right? Right? If, if, if Daniel's body is not in the room, who also is not in the room? Daniel, right? Like, to be a human being is to exist in the unity of body and soul. To exist in the unity of body and soul. So when Rene Descartes did this, this new view of the human person, he split the body and soul. He said, we're like this 
soul that comes, like, like Tony Stark in Iron Man, right? Tony Stark, he inhabits, he pilots this machine body. That's kind of what Descartes was thinking about what it meant to be human. This soul that operates, that pilots a body. So what happens is, you've got, I think, therefore I am. You give it enough time, what that turns into is, I think, therefore I am, whatever I think I am. You see how that works? This is the world in which we live. So Descartes contributed tremendously to our dismantling of what it means to be human, but he's really just one player, one pawn in this greater battle. He's one piece of this bigger picture. Like, the battle of understanding what it means to be human goes back to the beginning. And when I say like the beginning, I mean like the beginning, beginning, like Genesis beginning, right? So that's where we have to go. So theologians, saints, mystics, the church, the church teaches us that before God made the visible physical universe, before he made the visible physical creation, he first made the spiritual beings, which are the angels. Very good. The angels. He first made the angels. And he showed the angels, theologians say, he showed the angels a semblance of the plan that he was going to enact in time, that he was going to make this material universe, that he was going to populate this universe with creatures who were both this sort of hybrid being that were both the combination of body and soul. And one of these angelic creatures, one of the most beautiful and brilliant and power, most powerful creatures of them all, he looked at this plan, and when he discovered that God was going to, in the fullness of time, become one of these creatures, this creature named Lucifer looked at this plan and said, I will not serve this plan. Right? This is when Lucifer utters his great no to God's plan. He says, I will not serve. And scripture says, a third of the heavenly host falls in rebellion with Lucifer. And these fallen angels who are far more brilliant than you and I, these fallen angels, they go to war against the creature that God loves the most. Pandas. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're like, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you seen pandas? There, even that bamboo, they're so cute, right? Dang, baby pandas. You ever see that video of the panda sneezing and it scares the mama panda? You ever see that one? Oh, yeah. Like, and the panda's like, yeah. Okay, no, not pandas, not pandas. Us, y'all, we are the creature that God loves the most. We are the creature that God loves the most. And so Lucifer and this fallen legion of angels, they go to war against us for one reason... And one reason alone, we have bodies. I know that's crazy. It doesn't, that doesn't seem like the thing that would cause it all to go to heck, but that's what happened. Lucifer looks at humanity. He looks at our embodiment, and he's filled with rage and envy. Because unlike the angels, because we have bodies, we are, we are capable of union with God. The angels are capable of communion, but they're not capable of union, entering into a bodily union to be filled with the divine nature. Angelic spirits can't experience that. He hates our bodies. He hates our bodies. He hates your body. He hates our male and female bodies and our capacity to, to collaborate with God in this thing called procreation, to partner with God. He hates the fact that we can become one flesh, that we can bring forth new souls that God creates. He hates that. He hates our bodies. I want to read this. This is from a book by uh, an exorcist named Father Francesco Bamonte. And the book is called The Virgin Mary, 
and the devil in exorcisms. And last I looked online too, it was like $3,000 on Amazon because like it's out of print. So you know how that is like when they're out of print, they're like, you need to remortgage your house to buy this book. All right. So every once in a while, it, it's available again. So, but he what, he what this exorcist did was, as these demons would manifest, um, they would they would say things. They would say things that that corroborated what the church teaches and believes about, you know, let's say Jesus or the saints. But in particular for this book, it's about Mary. The demons corroborate what the church teaches about Mary, which is powerful. All right, so listen to this. One day I heard a demon shout, I am Lucifer, the most luminous of all the angels of heaven. I will never lower myself, never, to a God who becomes human flesh and who assumes human, human traits and a human body. The repugnance that we experienced when he entered into that flesh, only we know. I am pure spirit. Why not I instead of that human, or that, that human nature? Why? I am God and she, Mary, she was put over me. Why should she have been? I would never bow to a creature, one created to be below me. I will not tolerate that she be next to him and over me. I was the most beautiful angel, and the Immaculate One is the greatest insult of your God to us. She is only flesh. I am pure spirit. I am pure spirit. No, she is not. She higher than I? No. I am spirit. I cannot bear this. That putrid flesh, the purity of her body, it was not ever touched. We did not succeed. Gives you chills, right? Like Mufasa. Oh, man, like, that's intense. He hates not simply our souls. He hates our flesh. He hates our bodies. And the enemy, the devil, he's been seeking with tremendous success to blind us to the meaning of our bodies, to blind us to the meaning of our being made male and female and the call of the two to become one flesh. The devil doesn't want us to know what it means to be human. He doesn't want us to know what it means to be a man. He doesn't want us to know what it means to be a woman. He doesn't want us to understand why we have these bodies, why we are these bodies. He wants us to be confused. Why? Why is he aiming all of his demonic, hellish fury at marriage, sex, and the family? Because he knows. He knows that when God made them male and female in the beginning, he made them to be this incredible sign a sign of who God is in himself, right? We, how do we start every prayer, right? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We invoke the three persons of the Trinity, right? As Christians, we believe in a God who is one, but not just simply one. We believe in a God who is a communion of life and love, an eternal exchange of life and love. And when that God, that God who is communion and life and love, created an image of himself in creation, he didn't just make a man, he didn't just make a woman. He made a couple whose bodies and souls can come together in such a way that when the two become one, they become so much one that nine months later you have to give it a name and then become three in one. Who else is three in one? The Trinity. The family, marriage, mother, father, child. That is the earthly image of the Trinity. What is the Trinity like? That. But not only that, that's not simply the only thing that this is the sign of, right? God made them male and female in the beginning to be a sign of how God wants to relate to humanity, that he not, he's not just simply interested in being buddies with humanity, right? Buddy Jesus, kicking a soccer ball, right? Like that's not 
the full extent of the relationship. That God wants a kind of intimacy that can only be described in the least inadequate way by describing it through the lens of marriage. He's like, I want to be like married to you. I want to be implicated in everything that is yours. I want to share life with you. So the devil knows that this is what this is a sign of. He knows that this is what is proclaiming and pointing to God. So he attacks it. He attacks it. He attacks it. This is from uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body. He says, the body, your body, my body, every body, Daniel's body, has been created to transfer into the visible realm of creation. This world, right? The invisible mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it, that the body was created to reveal God. The body was created to reveal God. And if you get rid of maleness, if you get rid of femaleness, if you get rid of sexuality, if you get rid of the male-female difference, what you then get rid of is all of the biblical concepts that God has given us to understand salvation. You get rid of maleness and femaleness. You get rid of marriage and bridegroom and bride and family and mother and father, right? You get rid of it all. If you get rid of this, you get rid of it all. So if you were the devil... And you could just aim one bazooka from hell rocket at one thing. What would you aim it at? That. The body. The body. Friends, welcome to our world. Welcome to our world. This is why, this is why the enemy is doing what he's doing. This is, this is our world. This is our world. So... I want to press into this even further, and I want to do this with great reverence. Because the people who experience an alienation of who they are from their bodies, so people who experience gender identity dysphoria, they are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. St. Paul is so clear. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with principalities and powers. Our battle is a spiritual battle. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have and there is a father of bad ideas. Jesus called him the father of lies, and he is trying to blind the world. He's trying to blind the world. I want to show you what it looks like when you have a culture that has believed lies, a culture that has um, divorced truth from love. What does it look like when truth is separated from love? What does it look like when truth is separated from compassion? This is what it looks like.
Yeah. Nice to meet you. Oh, like, why? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I would be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion, and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions, just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? society and you're not causing harm to other people I feel like that should be an okay thing if I told you I'm six feet five inches what would you say During the first breakout, I was watching that thinking, I wonder what those guys' majors are. Like the, the college kids, I'm like, I hope they're not like engineers or doctors. <laughs> like, Okay. He asked the question, why is it so hard to tell a 5'9 white guy he's not a 6'5 Chinese woman? Shouldn't be hard. The reason it's hard is because we've divorced truth from love. We've divorced truth from compassion. We've embraced this blind affirmation, this blind affirmation. If you feel that way, you heard him. If you feel that way, like there's, there might be communities that could accept you if you feel like you're a first grader. Yeah, they're like Stanford College, right? Like you can go there. Okay, so let's talk about the truth. Let's talk about the truth of the word gender, right? Let's talk about the truth of the word gender. So gender comes from uh, this root, 
the root gen, it's a Greek root. It means to give birth to or to, give, to be the origin of, to give life to, right? So gender shares, it's, it's, it has this, this root gen with like a bunch of other gen words. For example, generous, generate, progeny, genesis, or this one, genitals. <laughs> I think you're going to have genitals on a screen on your retreat day, huh? All right. So here... What is the meaning of the word gender? Gender means, gender is determined by the manner in which one generates the next generation, and that is determined by the kind of genitals you have. Gender is determined by the manner in which one generates the next generation, and that is determined by the kind of genitals one has. See, the question of identity, we've said gender identity. The question of identity is a psychological question. Identity is not hardwired at birth. That's a psychological question. There are many and mysterious reasons why someone might feel a, a disconnect between their sense of self and their body. And for those people, we have to have immense compassion because I can't imagine what that's like. I can't imagine the anguish of feeling like your body is not the right body. But the loving thing is to not simply say, you are right. When truth is divorced from love, it ceases to be love. The loving thing is in the measure that you're willing to walk with a person to help them bring their thinking into conformity with reality and not the other way around. Not the other way around. Because the truth is there is no such thing as sex reassignment surgery. Yes, there is procedures that can give a man the appearance of being a woman, and there's procedures that can give a woman the appearance of being a man. But still, every cell in that person's body is either XX or XY, meaning female or male. And there, there's even trans activists today who are, who are even rejecting the idea of, of sex reassignment surgery altogether. They're saying, you know, it's no longer I am a biological male who identifies as a woman, and now I need to bring my body into conformity with my thinking. Now you've got people saying, no, I am a woman, regardless of the body I have, and I don't need to have any surgery to change that, because what is a woman anyway? If, if, if you can just think your way into the other sex, then sure. Why have surgery? And it might not seem like a big deal. It might not seem like, like, like shouldn't we just let people have or do what they want to do? Shouldn't we just... You know, is it hurting anybody? The answer is yes. It's, it's, first of all, it's hurting these people who are undergoing tremendous life-altering procedures at an age where they don't really have the, the mental maturity to make those decisions. And secondly, it's hurting society. In particular, it hurts women. This transgender movement, the real victim, at the end of the day, in many, many ways, is women. It's women. Like, for example, what happens when that biological man is undressing in the same lady's locker room as you? How do you know that he's not there for predatory motives? Or how about a guy named Joseph Roman, 38 years old, who molested two six-year-old girls and an eight-year-old girl, and while he's being arrested, just kept saying out loud to the police officers, no, I'm a nine-year-old girl, I'm a nine-year-old girl. Should they have taken him to the juvenile detention center or to the adult prison? Because if thinking is what determines your reality, then who are the police officers to, to question that? Guys, like, we have to see the far-reaching consequences of these ideas. 
This is also the, the, the end of women's sports. We're seeing that right now. So when we go through these pictures, all of this is based on the idea, the lie, that men and women are completely interchangeable, that there's no difference. This individual right here, this, this was a biological male who identifies as a female, goes by the name Fallon Fox, is a UFC fighter. Fallon Fox got in the ring with uh, a woman named Tamika Bretz, who was the winningest woman in the UFC. Every person, every woman she f squared up against, she defeated. Every single one. She gets in the ring with Fallon Fox. Fallon Fox fractures her skull, gives her a concussion, bruises her ribs, sends her, sends her to the emergency room. Tamika Brett's letter says, <clears throat> describing the, the fight, she goes, I have never felt so overpowered before in my life. She goes, and I am a strong woman. You had a whole arena of people watching a man beat a woman nearly to death. Guys, sex can't be reassigned because it's ne it was never assigned in the first place. When that sperm meets that egg in that mysterious moment that God has ordained, it's either a male or a female. The presence or absence of a Y chromosome determines whether that ovum, whether that fertilized egg will develop into a, the kind of being that's capable of being a mother or the kind of being that's capable of being a father. That's what happens at birth. That's, it, it determines the entire DNA sequencing. Like, when we are born, and for, for many of us, before we're born, like an ultrasound technician or somebody, they, they identified us, right? Like, when a woman is pregnant and people ask the question, what are you having? No one's thinking, I wonder if she's having a turtle. Maybe she's pregnant with a giraffe, right? When they ask, what are you having? What are they asking? Is it a boy or girl, Right? We got all these gender reveal parties, right? What are they asking? Is it a boy or a girl? How do they determine that? What is the ultrasound technician looking at? Are they looking at the baby's ears? No? Elbows? Kneecaps? They're looking at the genitals. Like, I know this is so weird. Before you were born, there was some person looking at your genitals, <laughs> trying to figure out, are you a boy or girl? Right? And everyone was stoked to find out the answer to the question. There was a party, right? And why? Why, why, why? Because our genitals reveal the manner in which we generate. And there are two ways to generate the next generation either in the giving forth of the seed, in which case, like, we become a father or you generate by receiving and conceiving and gestating in which case you become a mother there's only two ways to generate the next generation in a male way therefore a fatherly way or a female way therefore a motherly way we are a sexually dimorphic species meaning we we come in two varieties, two ice cream flavors, right? like male and female. 
right? Like we don't, there's not, we don't split down the middle, right? There's not like, we're not like amoebas. We're all of a sudden like, like there's like two of me up here, right? That's not how this works. That's not how this works. This reality, this, this, this giving and receiving thing, this maleness and femaleness, it's so significant, not just simply on the level of biology. It's so significant, as you heard me saying, on the level of understanding who we are as persons and who God is. Right? Grace, we say as Catholics, grace builds on nature. Grace builds on nature. The supernatural is built on the natural. We have to understand the natural realities first to understand the supernatural realities. Right? Jesus tells us you have to be born again. Right? He talks about this whole, he talks about redemption, salvation through the lens of, of birth and marriage and coming together. Like that's how he talks about it. Like if you really want to understand Christianity, if you really want to understand this faith, you have to understand it is a grand love story. The Bible begins in Genesis with a marriage. Adam and Eve in the garden. The Bible ends with a marriage. Christ the Lamb marrying the church in the book of Revelation. The bookends of the Bible are marriages. Do you think that matters? you think that's significant? Yes, right? right. And smack dab in the middle of the Bible is a book called The Song of Songs. It's this incredible erotic love poetry. I know, that's in the Bible, right? Right there, all throughout the Old Testament, God is identifying himself as the bridegroom. Israel, he identifies as his bride. Jesus, his first miracle, pop quiz. Where was Jesus' first miracle? The wedding feast of Cana. God in the flesh shows up and he's like, all right, time to start doing miracles. He could have done anything. He could have, done, he could have been like, y'all want to see something sweet? Watch those rocks. They're about to be turned into wombats. Boom, right? Like, he could have done that, right? It would be a very different religion, I think. But his first miracle was at a wedding, at a wedding. And what he did was he did the thing that the bridegroom was supposed to do, which is provide the wine, right? And all throughout his ministry, he calls himself the bridegroom, right? At the Last Supper, he enters into this betrothal with the bride. Like, all of it. All of it, all of it, all of it is, like, to understand Christianity, we have to realize that it's not about, like, a behavior modification plan, right? Jesus did not become flesh in order just to tell us, just be nice to each other. He became flesh to unite himself to us, to give his flesh to us, to unite himself, to marry us. To marry us. That's what every single mass is. That's why all of this matters. That's why all of this matters. It's one long love story. And the reason why marriage and sex and gender, they're so under attack today, is because there really is an enemy who really wants to confuse us so that we're really unable to understand the big picture. There really is an enemy. It's not just a bunch of, you know, grumpy men in Rome who are like, ah, we're just gonna, we're just gonna be stuck in the past. Like, if we get rid of maleness and femaleness, if we say the body doesn't matter, then none of it matters anymore. None of it matters. What would it mean? 
to have um, like Jesus saying, this is my body given for you. That doesn't mean anything anymore. I want to end with this, that um, the three children who um, were the visionaries of Fatima. Who's here? Her, Our Lady of Fatima, we've heard of this. All right, so Mary appeared to these three poor shepherd kids at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, Mary showed up and she, she, she gave these kids, first of all, she gave them like a tour of hell, which in my mind, I'm always like, whoa, Mary, like, it's like, that's like a seven-year-old girl, like, like pump the brakes. All right, she gave him a tour of hell. She, she gave him a vision of another great war and that the bishop in white, the pope, would be assassinated. And she also said that Russia, she said Russia would spread her errors throughout the world. Well, at the heart of, at the heart of communism is this belief that the fundamental problem with society is class struggle between, it's power struggle. And Marx and Engels, the, the founders of, of communist philosophy, they saw that the fundamental class struggle was not between the rich and the poor, but between men and women. So the heart of communism is a desire to eliminate the sex difference. It's to eliminate the sex difference. Mary said that this error would spread throughout the world. So fast forward a number of years. Um, Sister Lucia, Lucia dos Santos, one of the girls from the... Um, visions from, from Fatima. She becomes a nun. She's in her late 90s, and she's having a conversation with a guy named Cardinal Kafara, who was the first um, president rector of um, the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. So John Paul II, he created this institute in Rome to propagate to the world his teachings about what it means to be human, all those things. And Cardinal Kafara was running up against all these obstacles, all these problems. And he was reaching out to Sister Lucia, just like looking for encouragement. And she said, my dear brother, the, the decisive battle will be between the devil and over the issue of marriage and the family. She said, but do not fear because those who fight on the side of marriage and the family are already on the side of victory. She said, do not be afraid. Like this is, this is the era that we're in. We're in this stage of history where Mary's got her heel on the neck of Satan. She's like stepping on the serpent. You've seen those pictures of Mary stepping on the snake, right? She's like, whoosh, right? That's what she's doing. She's got her foot on Satan's head and Satan is ticked and he's just whipping his tail furiously. And that's what we're experiencing in the culture right now. All this craziness and chaos. That's what's going on. And the reason he's so upset because he knows he loses. He's lost. He's already lost. He's just rearranging deck furniture on the Titanic. That's all he's doing. He's trying to take as many people down with him. All right, friends, let's wrap this up in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you for the wonder of our creation as male and female. Lord, we ask you to give us courage to speak truth but truth in love and love with truth. Give us the courage. Give us the courage to be emissaries of your gospel in the world. We pray all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys.